Hello, this is Robert Crowther for ID the Future, a podcast of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. What would happen if Charles Darwin were to come back today? That's the intriguing question posed by Nikhil John Ramju's fascinating short novel, I, Charles Darwin. ID the Future is continuing to present the audio adaptation of Ramju's book. In today's episode, Darwin learns about DNA and other amazing discoveries of molecular biology since he developed his theory. He lived in an age before antibiotics, before computers, and before the discovery of DNA. Yet Charles Darwin changed our science and culture forever. What would Darwin say if he returned to the Earth today? Find out in I, Charles Darwin, icharlesdarwin.com. Episode 4, The Secret of the Cell. How strange the paradox. Your modern era of bestial genocides also developed as an age of stunning scientific discoveries and applications. Particle physics and the splitting of the atom, relativity, the Big Bang beginnings of our universe of billions of galaxies, space travel, moon and Mars landings, electric and petroleum-based motive power, heavier-than-air flight, jet aircraft, radio, radar, television and cybernetics. Computers and their vast application, all linked in a worldwide Earth satellite web of communications and knowledge. Then there is your conquest of the many lethal diseases of mankind, your fantastic healing medicines like antibiotics, and the molecular biological revolution. I do not hope to understand the development or impact of those almost numberless marvels which have utterly transformed human life since my time. The mind cannot encompass the great plenitude of scientific and technological genius that marked the past century. It is only one of all those creations of the age for which I may lay claim competence to inquire into. I speak of the unlocking of the secret of the cell, the fundamental structure of life. For revealed within the cell, as we know, is the key to the origin of species and the crux of the question of evolution. When I encountered the DNA revolution, it took my breath away. I had to lie down for twenty minutes, so fast my heart was beating. I felt that all the drawers of my mind had opened at the same time. Had I not previously trimmed my signature beard, I would have pulled at it like a madman. I liken this moment, now with some irony, to the dawning on my mind of my own consequential idea when I was young. Seen through the crude microscopes of my time, the cell had been a virtually impenetrable blob. Now it was revealed as an astonishing complex of intricate, interworking miniature mechanisms, replete with its own inbuilt information storage and processing system, and creative self-replicating powers. What I perceived immediately was that the cell was not only the central key to all the evolutionary change that my theory had proposed, it was also a structure whose astonishing intricacy and interdependent complexity presented fundamental difficulties for the very crux of my idea. 
That is to say, the impact of a random mutation on the hitherto four unimagined complex integrated whole, the truly vast machine-like complex of a single cell. And the organs and other components of almost all living forms were constituted of many kinds of cells. If it could be demonstrated, I have said, that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. My idea, drawing somewhat on Lamarck's notion of inheritable or acquired characteristics, was called pangenesis. I held that the hereditary particles in our bodies were affected by things we did during our lifetime. The modified particles migrated through the blood to the reproductive cells to be inherited by the next generation. Of course, I had never dreamed of the idea of a molecular basis of life, nor had my early successors, who in the first part of your last century altered my theory of descent somewhat. Rediscovering the assiduous genetic research of the Moravian monk Gregor Mendel, published in 1866, they infused into my theory the idea that natural selection acted on the random variations or mutations, specifically in the genetic material of organisms. Mendel's research with many generations of garden peas proved that it was not acquired parent characteristics, but laws of genetic selection that determined the traits of subsequent generations. The inheritance of a trait was determined, he said, by factors, which subsequently came to be called genes. Later research viewed evolutionary change to occur specifically in the genetic text as the key to my natural selection principle over vast periods, leading to whole new phyla of life. Thus did Darwinism evolve into Neo-Darwinism. And yet, with the DNA molecular revolution to come, something of greater moment lay on the horizon. I describe it now to clear my disbelieving mind. Here I paraphrase my esteemed successors. Every living cell of whatever type has the same basic biochemical structure from bacteria to the disparate cells of our own organism. The very roles of the cell's components are identical. At the heart of each cell is a set of directions coded in an internal structure called a double helix, discovered by James Watson and Francis Crick in 1953. It is formed of a compound, deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. The DNA molecule consists of four nucleotides arranged across the double helix in many combinations, specifying the functions that their coded information activates in the cell. The DNA molecule, only about one infinitesimal nanometer thick, would be, if stretched out, one meter long. The information it contains is encyclopedic, a genetic code distinct not only for the species, but for each individual of the species. The specific information the DNA contains is translated and transmitted by ribonucleic acid, or RNA, messenger molecules. This is actually automated information telling the cell what to do. DNA is the cell's blueprint. RNA carries the DNA's information to those parts of the cell that manufacture the cell's functional machines, the proteins, telling them how to construct themselves for the many functionally specified complex tasks that the proteins carry out. I am not an emotional man, but these revelations for me make Galapagos appear like a Sunday stroll. The proteins are the workhouses of the cell, the real stuff of life. 
Each of them is a molecular micro-machine that one would have to magnify a million times to see. Each consists of a chain-like molecule or polymer, a sequence of 20 or so compounds, amino acids. Every different protein has a unique acid sequence and is a three-dimensional folded chain subject to different kinds of electrochemical forces that facilitate the atomic interactions between the amino acids that enable the functioning of the particular type of protein. Substitution of one type of amino acid in the chain for another destabilizes the entire molecule. Proteins are folded within the cell into immensely complex spatial arrangements. But the interoperability of protein functions within the cell adds a further dimension of complexity. The molecules of cellular proteins operate not singly, but in teams. The functioning of any particular type of cell requires the successful binding or interaction of constituent proteins. Your researchers today say that random evolution of such protein-to-protein -protein binding, that is to say, a coinciding mutational change in the complex structures of two proteins simultaneously, is mathematically beyond the reach of chance. I learn that there are proteins which, one must say, possess a programmatic genius. These are homeotic, or Hox proteins, master regulators or switches that turn on animal development programs, from embryo to adult, I think now of the charming mystery in my own children's little smiles when, having lost their baby teeth, their new ones began to appear. Hox proteins do their work in fruit flies, and they do their work in humans, in our body plans, beginning during our nine-month gestation programs. They build our marvellous organs and limbs, all our parts, down to the hair follicles of facial skin that have provided so luxuriantly for me in my high maturity. What are the functions the cell of life fulfills? Here is how your biologists describe the process. The cell is a complex of molecular machines. They haul cargo along infinitesimal highways. They operate biochemical switches that regulate the entry and exit of materials from the cell. They capture energy, allowing electric current to flow. They build other machines that, for example, ingest food. It is in the molecular sequences of the DNA double helix of the cell that random mutation may occur. It can occur accidentally when DNA is copied in a new generation. Part of the DNA's double helix may be left out in the copy. Sometimes a DNA element can insert itself in a new position in the genome, that is, the entire DNA map of the species. Yet, such random DNA events, your molecular biologists have discovered, do not occur frequently or in any automatic way. Rather, the copying of a mistake in the DNA occurs only once in a generation for every hundred million of the DNA nucleotides, with rare exceptions. Within viruses such as HIV and the ever-deadly and wicked malaria plasmodium, the mutation rate is much speedier. But here is the significant observation. Few mutations are helpful mutations. As one of my successors wrote recently, it is easier for such microevolution to break things than to make things. The tendency is not toward beneficial change, but toward auto-destruction of the organism, as the information transmission system internal to the cell produces more and more errors. This we now observe empirically. As a biochemical occurrence triggering species change, random mutation is a vandal, a havoc wreaker, thwarting and stopping the cell's interoperating mechanisms. 
Random mutation, as the mechanism of evolutionary change, is thus incoherent. It cannot build the cell's integrated molecular systems. Here is exactly why. Unguided trial and error is the correlative of my unguided chance selection by nature of beneficial mutations. Yet, your mathematicians have demonstrated that unguided trial and error fails as a creator. Without the guidance of algorithms, trial and error, or chance, can solve no problem beyond the most trivial. Every one of your mathematicians, your engineers, your space scientists, your marvellous computer and software technologists knows no role for random chance in the designing and functioning of your fantastic technologies. But how much more complex are nature's organisms and their inbuilt genetic programs? For your space shuttles, as well as the marvels of your iPads and iPhones, chance is a non-word. But then, how do living organisms, so much more complex than any machine of the 21st century, defy the laws of chance? What are the chances for change, your mathematicians have asked, when a random mutation takes place in the DNA of an existing organism? Chance, for example, as the agent in the building of novel genes or proteins, or the exponential number of combinations of amino acids, Mathematics tells biology in your time that even a relatively short functional protein made up of a 150 amino acid sequence would constitute one sequence in a chance lottery of other possible sequence combinations that would be astronomically large. I am no specialist in the powers of ten, but I read that the odds for the chance evolution by random mutation of such a living entity as integratingly complex as a short protein exceeds the number of atoms physicists calculate to exist in the entire universe. Your famous cosmologist Hoyle calculated the odds of producing the proteins necessary for a simple one-celled organism by chance at a number in powers of ten absolutely beyond comprehension. In short, beyond the reach of chance. I discovered that some have come to speculate on the existence of unknown built-in evolutionary laws yet undiscovered in order to explain the general evolution of life argued in my theory. But if there were such laws, and laws are by definition non-random, such laws would have to have had the designs we see in all species already written in. As I learnt and meditated on all of this, there emerged in my mind the critical question about the cell, about my general idea, and about me. How could even the simplest cell, vast in complexity, have suddenly assembled itself? The utter and unalterable interdependence of the cell's subsystems is all. When I learned of the cell's fantastic structures, labyrinths, circuits, gateways, all complete with a built-in blueprint, not to mention translation, communication and even self-replication mechanisms, I was struck in the most powerful way by the fitting together of all the parts, the infinitesimal, interdependent molecular machines that make up the cell's mechanized factory, and these amazingly diverse cells of the living world have no ancestors, they have programs. Indeed, the very concept of primitive, primordial ancestor cells is an absurdity. And so again I ask myself, how could such a factory assemble itself, consonant with my idea? The factory of the cell operates based on the information that its internal DNA double helix transmits within it. But here is a further question your scientists have raised. 
The double helix is only a data storage bank and transmitter for information. Information itself has no physical attribute or dimension, no atoms or molecules. How does the double helix and its fantastically specified molecules get the information it codes and acts on? Have your biologists not now discovered that something non-material, non-organic, actuates and drives the living world? The DNA molecule is matter, but the information it holds is not matter. It is non-material. It is a different domain than matter. Biology has an immaterial component, information, in the cells of every living thing on Earth. The component is just as real and actual as anything physical or material. With us, information originates in our processing of our sensory data into thoughts which have no physical, material dimension. We create information. And yet we now know in your time that information is found in biology, which we did not create. Where did the information coded in the cell's DNA come from? How can a thing with no physical organic reality originate and evolve, as I declared all life to have evolved from what I believed was a primordial single cell? As one of your scientists has lately said, the DNA molecule is the medium, but it is not the message. Is it not now dawning on us that the information which directs every living cell has to have preceded the physical material structure of the double helix, RNA and protein molecules? From the subcellular to the species, what a biochemical mountain to climb. The assembly of functionally specified molecules, the forming of them into multi-molecular systems which are combined into the uniting of diverse types of cells to form organs. Organ systems brought together into the complete organism. Here are the building blocks of a living thing, a species, an organic system whose subsystems are co-adapted to interact functionally. When I imagine the biochemical mountain that must be climbed to reach the grail of a species at the mountain's peak, I must now imagine nature's climb as vastly multiple. There is not one climber, but many. They hack out separate paths of ascent, yet they must do so together in time, somehow collaboratively, for they must constantly co-adapt one to the other. These climbers must separately climb, and the subsystems must separately evolve, but in a miraculous lockstep, for they must all reach the peak simultaneously in order to emerge as an immensely complex, independent, integrated whole. How? Not explained. I am appalled by the just-so stories to which some of my successors resort. A brilliant molecular biologist of your time, Michael Behe, has drawn an irrefutable conclusion. Nature presents us with the incontestable fact of cellular structures that are irreducibly complex, the bacterial flagellar motor with its 30-part biochemical rotary engine, for example. The component parts of such structures interact functionally in a complex intricacy, such as that the mutational alteration of one component stops the mechanism, renders it inoperable, just as the insertion of a wrongly sized clog in a clockworks stops the clock. This fundamental and irrefutable fact of molecular biology reality became well known in the late 1980s, over 20 years ago. The cell which carries both the instructions and the mechanisms to build its functional self and is only an element of an unimaginably more complex organ collapses my theory's information-free, thought-free, plan-free central principle. 
Complexity defies chance. Complexity specified by its own actuating information eliminates chance. Complexity that is irreducible, that cannot function in the absence of a single one of its interoperable parts, compels me to recognize that your age has empirically established a biological reality incompatible with my general theory. And here I take note of further revolutionary discoveries in your time in realms of science beyond my ken. I discovered that a general consensus now exists among your astrophysicists that our universe is fine-tuned for life on our planet. That is a conclusion of the most profound consequence. As one of them has said, our universe is a cosmos and not a chaos. Was it not your famous physicist Einstein who revolutionized the world's understanding of cosmic time and of matter, who said that God did not play dice with the universe? I believed firmly that nature played dice, that natural chance selection acting on random mutations fully and totally explained the origin and descent of the living world. Your discovery of the molecular basis of life revealed with absolute finality that nature too is fine-tuned. If science is to remain honest, if we are to pursue truth wherever it leads, the fine-tuning of the natural world too can no longer be disputed. And now I, whom history has made tribune of the unguided evolution of all life-forms, am compelled to accept the empirical evidence of molecular nature's built-in constraints on evolutionary change. Evolution within the species barrier is evident, that is, microevolutionary change. Beyond that barrier, perhaps we have a definitional problem. The edge of evolution is very small. It does not encompass the great phyla of nature. Something else must explain the intricacy present in all life's astonishing diversity. Something else must account for the Cambrian explosion. Something else must explain the fact that the non-material information which is coded and conveyed by life's DNA structure to its subcellular protein factories had to be there before the body plans of today's vertebrate life, which appeared so suddenly in geological time. Organized information is that something. Information to design and program every molecular detail and function of every species in the great plenitude of Earth's life. Organized information requires preceding intelligence. Organized and programmed information on the absolute order of magnitude I have described. And it necessitates an omniscient intelligence, a single, unique, timeless force of being, preceding the universe of order which that force set in motion in the Big Bang cosmos. So I must conclude that information-based life on Earth from its ancient beginnings was intelligence-guided, designed by an omniscient intelligence in the vastness of cosmic time to culminate in the unique, apprehending, thinking, reasoning, creative species that we are. A species compelled by the empirical evidence in cosmos and microcosm to recognize an originating, guiding, creative intelligence beyond all stars, before all worlds, author and guide of the expanding universe and the unfolding history of life on our planet. Why have those incontrovertible facts of cosmic and natural reality not overwhelmed you with wonder or humility? Everywhere, the integrated complexity of the fine-tuned laws of nature, the properties of matter, the details of the living world, the events of the cosmos, point incontestably to a precisioned physical reality of intelligent design. 
Do you not grasp that you confront in your time infinities, not only the infinity of the cosmos and of the atom and subatomic, but the infinity of the biological world? I. Charles Darwin is based on the novella by Nicol John Romju. Audio adaptation by John West and Jens Jorgensen. Narration by Robert Blythe and Andres Williams. Music by Pond5.com. Copyright 2013 by Nicol John Romju and Discovery Institute. All rights reserved. If you'd like to get the original book on which this audio production is based, visit icharlesdarwin.com. At that site, you can also find out how to purchase the entire audio production as an iTunes album or a CD. Be sure to listen for next week's concluding episode, The Return to Downhouse, where Darwin revisits his family home and offers final reflections on his visit to the 21st century. For ID the Future, this is Robert Crowther. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2013. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.